1: How do we point back to Wednesday and do justice, in a sense, to how close this democracy came?
2: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law in the courts and the justice system. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the law and the courts for Slate. This week, we're going to bring you another extra off-week edition of the show to talk about events at the National Capitol. On Wednesday, as both houses of Congress convened to formally ratify the election of Joe Biden as President of the United States, a mob of rioters, some armed, stormed the barricades around the buildings, broke windows, climbed walls. Capitol Police, tasked with defending the Capitol and members of Congress, were completely overwhelmed as rioters smashed into both the House and the Senate chambers. Representatives were rushed to secure locations, some of them pulled on gas masks. After several hours and a small smattering of arrests, the insurrectionists mostly left the building, just walking out the doors. The counting of electoral votes that had stopped that afternoon continued into the evening. And early Thursday morning, the election was finally formally called for Joe Biden. As of this taping, five people are dead. As of this taping, two members of Trump's cabinet have resigned. As of this taping, talk of invoking the 25th Amendment has largely been quelled by Vice President Mike Pence. As of this taping, articles of impeachment have been drawn up, reportedly, to be introduced in the House on Monday. As of this taping, the United States reported its highest single-day COVID-19 death toll, surpassing 4,000 people on Thursday. Our guest today is Joshua Geltzer. He serves as the founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and teaches law at Georgetown University Law Center. Geltzer served from 2015 to 2017 as Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council staff, having served prior to that as Deputy Legal Advisor to the National Security Council and as Counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the U.S. Justice Department. Josh, it is a pleasure to have you back even on this incredibly sobering week.
1: Thank you for the chance to join you.
2: Josh, one of the reasons it was you I wanted to talk to this week is that you wrote the piece almost two years ago. It was February of 2019, issuing the warning that Donald Trump would never step down even if he lost the election. And as I recall at the time, you were largely met by silence for a long time. People just did not want to engage with you on that. Um, Then I remember that I interviewed you that summer in a printed piece at Slate, and you said again a lot of the same things that you didn't think Donald Trump, by temperament, was ever going to concede defeat, and you warned again that, at minimum, we should be preparing for that possibility. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it is that you saw coming in 2019, why you saw red flags then, and the extent to which the events of Wednesday at the Capitol either corroborated your fears or in some ways ran counter to them?
1: You know, I think that the predictability is, is part of the tragedy here. This was not some break with the previous Trump, the Trump of the, the campaign trail or the Trump of the White House. This was the, the culmination of that Donald Trump. Why might one have thought that a loss at the polls was not going to be accepted by him graciously or at all? well, he'd lost an early primary battle to Ted Cruz and he said it was rigged and it should be done over when he thought his party, the Republicans were going to lose big in the 2018 midterms he cast doubt ahead of time on the validity of Of that, All the groundwork was there, and the stakes were then higher, of course, because here was Donald Trump now sitting in the White House, having tried to use the organs of government to ensure an electoral victory. That's what got him impeached, and it didn't stop him even when when he was. And for all of that still not to yield a victory, it just – it fit with the pattern that he wouldn't accept that graciously or indeed (laughs) – at all. But I do think the predictability adds to this the sense of avoidability. Because as we go back and as we look at moments that could have headed this off, frankly, from two perspectives. From a law perspective, there obviously was impeachment. He was impeached for trying to abuse the powers of the United States government to secure his personal political fortunes. And from the perspective of national security, from the fact that his encouragement, and I dare say at times incitement to his supporters to take resistance to his electoral loss into their own hands. From both perspectives, Wednesday was, it was not a break, it was a culmination. And that makes it very sad to see, but it also means that it was predictable.
2: And I think before we go on, Josh, I want to say something for a moment about tone. Because the other thing that I note now when I look back at my published Q&A with you after you wrote your piece was that already I was being a little flip, right? I was making jokes about, ha, 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 you know, he appropriated money from the military to build his border wall, even after Congress told him he couldn't, ha, ha. And you checked me pretty quickly, even in a printed Q&A, and said, those are consequential things that you're describing. And and I feel like I want to really have this conversation with an understanding that it's very, very easy to succumb to the funny memes, right? The axe body spray, ha, 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 beer belly putch, ha, ha, ha. Um, You know, people died. And I feel like one of the things you've been checking me on since, since I've known you is that it's really tempting to slide into irony, humor, disdain, um... All the ways that we trivialize something that—you'll tell me if I'm wrong, Josh. I, I think what happened on Wednesday was one of the most sobering and consequential things I've ever seen. I,
1: I think so, too. It's, it's a day that if, if we don't remember it, if we don't keep it tattooed on the inside of our, of our eyelids for weeks and months to come, we will be making a serious mistake. Uh, because we need to learn from it and we need to figure out what it means for the trajectory this wonderful democracy could be on if there isn't active effort to steer it in a different direction. So I I, I think it's an enormously consequential and, and sad day. But I also think there was a real challenge in how to talk about this before Wednesday before various other horrors of the Trump era. Because just imagine if, if somebody had had pitched to you, Dalia, at Slade, a piece six months ago that described Wednesday as it went down, that that the Capitol rotunda will be uh, overrun, that there will be members of, of Congress cowering uh, and told to, to have gas masks at the ready in case m- more tear gas needs to be used, that the Confederate flag will be Held uh, by by rioters who've climbed some of the the external parts of the Capitol, it, it, it would have been hard to say, yeah, we'll we'll just we'll just run that one. Uh, even if I've just told you that overall it's predictable, the particularity of the scenes, the astonishing images, videos, audio we've all heard of how it played out, it's uncomfortable to say that that could happen because it's uncomfortable for it to happen, and so to figure out. How to warn people ahead of time, I think, was something you and I grappled with in conversation and and in print. But even now, how do we point back to Wednesday and do justice, in a sense, to how close this democracy came? There could have easily been members of the House and senators hurt or killed uh, by how things played out. And if we don't appreciate that gravity... And what it means, not just as a as a failing of securing the Capitol building, that needs to happen, but more that there were trend lines in our democracy that pointed to this moment and that some allowed to get to this moment. If we don't take that really seriously, um, then we are not going to figure out a better pathway out of this.
2: And, and it's useful, I think, just to, to dovetail with that point, to think about the fact that we get really... Um, caught up in the guys with the fur, you know, <laughs> fur garments and the pointy helmets. And it's just ever so easy to slide back into the ways this looked like parody because it allows us to smugly say, oh, our institutions held. We've been saying our institutions held for years now. Uh, I think that. It's not so much that the institutions held and saved us, as you just pointed out, the Capitol Police didn't prepare for what was to come. What held was our luck in some sense. And it is absolutely emphatically the wrong lesson to say we don't prepare for the next one after Charlottesville. We don't prepare for the next one after we saw riding in the streets in D.C. because our institutions are doing a good job uh, don 't be fooled by the fact that these guys are dressed up in costumes right that 's what you 're saying
1: I am saying that you know the, the the ridiculousness of the of the costumes the the silliness of how uh, some of it looked uh, obviously with some very serious results but that is that 's deliberate that has been a deliberate turn by those uh, loosely characterized as violent white supremacists that includes neo nazis and neo confederates. It includes a group of folks who have deliberately embraced a bizarre humor of sorts and, and and symbolism and logos that strike the rest of us. And sometimes I think even them as ridiculous, but it has been their reinvention. And as, as they burst onto the national scene uh, in a new way with Charlottesville back in August 2017... Um, these these sorts of memes, Pepe the Frog, their their joking phrasings, that was their rebrand, their reboot in a sense, and they know that a, the phrase "Boogaloo Boy" is to take another uh, group. They know that that sounds silly. They wear Hawaiian shirts on purpose, but they're doing it because it is gaining a certain traction. That that combination of deadly serious uh, ideology, deadly serious uh, actions on Wednesday, and some element of ridiculousness and humor, it seems to be gaining traction. And of course, it's gaining traction in part because the president of the United States for the past four years has at times looked the other way, at times more actively uh, encouraged it, such as the the stand back and stand by comment at the debate. And so that's not... um, It's not an accidental byproduct of their approach. It is part of how, in an internet-driven, meme-driven digital world, these groups have taken some very ancient and awful ideas, but also given them a certain uh, modern uh, and even jocular look. And yet, of course, when it is Capitol Police uh, losing their life uh, as they try to protect uh, our, our nation's senators and representatives, that is nothing but serious.
2: Josh, I want to talk about precisely this question of who is responsible, who has lashed themselves to this project, who is complicit, because I think part of the silliness and the jocularity you describe makes it very easy for serious people to later disavow it, right? This looked like it was fun. It was a lark. And I'm remembering, again, when I interviewed you about your now- years-old claim that the president would not walk away mildly. I asked you again in print, what's the best advice about how to prepare for this? And and your response was, I'm quoting you to yourself now, we need political leaders, especially Republicans, to make clear, both publicly and privately, that for Trump to contest the valid results of an election would be a red line and that he would get zero support. Um. That was your claim at the time, that Republicans would need to make clear to Trump and then enforce to Trump if he walked away from the valid results of an election, they would not support him. So this brings me to this really complicated question about the events of this week that start – not with that rally, but with Josh Hawley, with Ted Cruz, calmly telling us they're prepared to set aside the election results. I'd like you to listen for just a minute to an interview from this past Sunday of Ted Cruz talking with Fox News' Maria Bartiromo, where he is very, very dismayed that other folks are alarmed at his decision to challenge the election results.
3: Well, listen, I, I think everyone needs to calm down. I, I think we need to tone down the rhetoric. This is already a, a volatile situation. It's like a tinderbox and, and, and throwing, thro- throwing lit matches into it. And, and so I think the kind of hyperbole we're seeing, the kind of angry language. You know, yesterday when I released my statement with, with 10 other senators, I, I had multiple, uh, multiple Democrats uh, urging that, that, that I should be arrested and tried for the crimes of sedition and treason. Now, now, look, that's not helpful. At a time when this country, when we're pitted against each other, j- j- just relax and let's do our jobs. We have a responsibility mm. to follow the law. And, and, and let me say, by the way, to those members who may not have a concern about this election, whether you're a Democrat or even some Republicans, the, the, the poll numbers you covered at the top of the show, I, I think ought to be deeply troubling to everyone. 39% of Americans think, quote, the election... Was rigged.
2: My question for you at this moment in hindsight is Is it wrong to say that those Republicans who implicitly let this spin out, implicitly, I guess at this point I can say explicitly, let this spin out by saying, Well, if Donald Trump has questions, we have questions. There's nothing wrong with getting more information. Let's just form a commission. Is that the kind of thing that you can say directly emboldened Donald Trump and the rioters, the the look, I'm just doing my job, I just want to get to the bottom of all this election fraud, nothing irresponsible there. That's what you were worried about, right?
1: Well, the way it played out was what I worried about and indeed the opposite of, of what I, I urged. Not only was there no red line drawn, uh, instead... Um, when after November 3rd, and especially a few days later, after it became clear that, that Trump had lost, there was active amplification of downright lies. Lies about voter fraud, lies about what state officials had done, lies about um, whether there was any doubt about uh, what the will of the, the people uh, had been in terms of choosing our next president and vice president. And that... It's not just indulgence. It's amplification and augmentation continued, not just for a couple days, not just for a couple weeks, but it continued, and it continued on the floor of the House chamber in Wednesday's joint session, and it continued even after our Capitol had been um, taken over by violent rioters um, whose very design had been to, to try to force our Congress to act on the lies, to do, to delay uh, what they were doing that day, which in fact they succeeded in doing, and potentially to somehow change who was going to become president. And so, uh, there there was no red line at all. There was instead, in, in by some, uh, a willingness to to amplify the president when he insisted on things that were not true. And when I say not true, you don't need to take my word for that. That is what state. Uh, election administrators and officials have said and shown it is what governors have said and shown it is what uh, has been uh, the conclusion of state and federal judges of both parties across the country in dozens of pieces of litigation. Of course, some of those didn't you know reach the the, the merit, Some were about standing and other things, but some did look into this. And so it, it really was it was the opposite of a red line. And so. To, uh, to to try to figure out how we got to Wednesday, I think you have to look at those who took what the president was saying and got more and more Americans to hear it and believe it, and in so doing, definitely encourage the president to keep saying it. And indeed, he keeps saying it even after uh, the the violence of, of Wednesday. He keeps insisting that there was something wrong and he should have been the victor, even if he uh, now acknowledges that he he won't be that. So, That information environment um, was easily predictable based on Trump's behavior and rhetoric before November 3, and yet it was not avoided at all. To the contrary, it was allowed to fester.
2: And I guess that leads inevitably to the follow-on question, which is how much do we hold the words of Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump that Very day.
4: All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. You could take third world countries, just take a look. Take third world countries. Their elections are more honest than what we've been going through in this country. It's a disgrace. We will never give up, we will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. Our country has been under siege for a long time. Who hides evidence? Criminals hide evidence, not honest people. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. So let's have trial by combat.
2: We we can have a technical legal conversation about incitement. Uh, it certainly did not calm the crowd. How much are the people who were saying, as Trump was saying, "Let's go to Washington. Let's be wild. Let's get this thing. If we can, you know if we can't litigate it in the courts, let's do it by force." How much do you credit that with being part of the problem?
1: I blame them a lot. I blame them a lot, as you say, Delia. it's it, for purposes of this conversation it's it's not the question of the, the liability uh, necessary for, uh, for for criminal offenses or even for civil liability for people hurt that that I suspect will play out in in, in various ways. But we can put all that aside. These uh, the, the, the types of, of, of spreading of disinformation you're, you're talking about made Americans, descend on Washington, D.C., with weapons, believing, believing that the uh, 2020 election had been rigged and stolen from the person they prefer, Donald Trump, and had them descending on the U.S. Capitol to try to make it so, or at least to convey the message that they wanted it to be so. And fostering that is fostering the opposite of a democracy. At the core of a democracy is the idea that the people choose, and once they've chosen, uh, whether you're, uh, in the majority or the minority in terms of how you voted, you accept that result. You, you, you stick around and you play again. Um, that's why our constitutional structure builds in so many protections for minorities, for those who, 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 who lose, uh, who are the minority party, who aren't happy with who the president is. The Bill of Rights, other core protections are all about thinking, you may not like the people in power so these rights will be there and available to you nonetheless and to say we won't accept it will make other people not accept it and worse still will urge them to take it back by violence that's antithetical to this this whole beautiful experiment and act of faith that that the united states represents
2: we'll be right back
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify
5: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC, terms and conditions apply.
2: I want to ask you one last framing question, and that, and that is about speech, because I think the other thing you and I have been talking to each other about writing together is. That speech has meaning and force and consequences, and you've just laid out what it means when Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump or any number of people say things and they say, I'm just just saying words, just asking the questions and and how that's an information problem. Uh, It's not a, a, a democracy problem, but it becomes a democracy problem. But I wonder if I can ask... A little bit of a sideways question, which is I feel as though for the last four weeks of maybe longer since the election, we've been having a national public debate about what to call this thing. And I wonder if we're both prisoners of the language we use, but also Too sloppy with it, and in a strange way, because we still can't decide. There was a moment when the editors of all the major papers said, we're going to stop calling them protesters. Now we're going to call them some other thing that we – insurrectionists, rioters, a mob. Uh, That that the imprecision of the language around what is happening, what has happened for the last four years, has in some ways been to blame for the failure of imagination that you're describing – from the outset
1: I, these these words matter a ton and and they have, they're, they're more than words, as you say, Dahlia, they reflect how we think about it and, and and you were kind enough to mention earlier that I've gotten the opportunity to work on uh, counterterrorism issues in in government, so uh, that framing comes to mind for me and uh, we have a definition, a statutory definition in the U.S. Code that says, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, but that acts of domestic terrorism are those intended to uh, coerce or intimidate a civilian population or alter the, the policies or actions of government. Again, that's, that's just a loose paraphrase. Um, but boy, does it capture what we saw on, on, on Wednesday um, because that's precisely what those who who used um, violence at the Capitol, wanted to do. They wanted to intimidate a civilian population. They wanted to change the, the course of our government. Uh, and I don't know if, if calling it domestic terrorism even fully captures the, the moment, because we tend to think of terrorist incidents as awful violence, but not as fundamentally switching who our leader is, who our, at least our, our president is, um, which was the ultimate animating principle and goal of, of those who, who used violence on Wednesday. So I think we are all struggling to, to appreciate the, the magnitude uh, of it. And there's so much happening in this country right now, so many lives being lost from uh, a, a pandemic that's at its very worst even as all of this is going on so much anticipation of a new administration starting that we all have so much to think about and to find the right words for and the right framing for. But I I want us all to dwell on this, because if we don't dwell on this, that I know is understating and underserving the, the magnitude of what unfolded on Wednesday.
2: Well, it raises this question for me about preparedness and... One of the things that I wrote on Wednesday night was that if you lived through Charlottesville 2017 and the manic activities of a local police force that was wholly unprepared for what came and then read the reports after and there was an extensive report done by uh, uh, – there was an extensive report done post-Charlottesville that – reflected how chaotic the police and law enforcement response was. And yet, having witnessed all that, we did it again at the Capitol. And we'll talk in a minute about the the security failures, because I think it raises really interesting questions about the role of the National Guard in domestic terror problems. But I think the larger issue that I'm struggling with is if we can't name the thing that just happened and we don't agree on what just happened, we can't prepare for the next one. And so in a strange way, again, this gets back to your we've seen this coming. This was always inevitable. And yet because we can't name the thing, we can't do anything other than wring our hands and say, well, that was probably rock bottom, even when it never is.
1: It, it, it does it leaves us trying to figure out um the 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 right mentality beyond getting to, to policing tactics or anything like that the right mentality for for the way ahead and and you're right that the, the hafi report which talked about uh where where Charlottesville needed to do better uh, was uh, was years ago now uh, as were the, the the events of Charlottesville itself plus follow-on uh incidents that that, that pick up on the ideology, even if they were, were different in, in, their, in their form. And it, this is hard, too. This is legitimately hard in the following sense. For those who want to express peacefully and lawfully their displeasure at the election results, they are entitled to that space. That goes back to those protections for, for those who find themselves in the political minority that I mentioned before. And I think law enforcement... Um, has a tradition uh, uh, not always perfect but has a tradition of trying to be careful to preserve that space and so when you start out with a day that sounds political in some ways in orientation those who are unhappy with their election results however one might characterize it there's a wariness i think to recognize that there's also parts of that day that are likely to prove completely unacceptable because they're violent and they're unlawful, or as you say, they're they're more than that. They are they are uh, an attempt to change the, the the leadership of our government by force, and preserving space for legitimate expression of political views that that needs to be a priority too. But so does ensuring that we never even get close. To the scene we saw on Wednesday, for the sake of for our legislators, for the sake of the staff and those who work there, but more broadly, for the sake that this democracy doesn't depend on how quickly the, the halls of Congress are, are are cleared of of those who are violating the law and, and insisting on a, a different future president. That, that that uh you know, you talk about shows of of force sometimes. Americans need to have confidence that that isn't what's gonna change the trajectory of history because because we've all made a, a pact as 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 a democracy that those that violence doesn't change that that course. Um, but Wednesday and and the the scenes we all witnessed, they sent a different message. And for those of us who are following what the cheerleaders of Wednesday and maybe even some of the participants on Wednesday have been saying in the in the few days afterwards about it, um, they are celebrating it. They are. Um, uh, finding it to be a, a success and a victory and um, that that notion that one can can do something uh, like that and and walk away from it with something to celebrate that that needs to be changed.
2: I, I want to press you on one thing Josh, which is of course, It is absolutely clear that law enforcement is going to balk a little when they know that this looks like protected political activity. But you and I both know people who've been dragged out of their wheelchairs sitting in front of a congressman's office and cuffed by the Capitol Police. And you and I both saw the scenes at Lafayette uh, Square and the scenes out of Portland and around the country. And I think most Americans of conscience would – Resist the notion that the police are anxious not to step in once something looks like it's political. It feels to me, particularly having heard the DC call in the days before Wednesday stand down, counter protesters, go home board up stores, let the police handle this. This can't be Charlottesville. And then to see the police, rather than step in and do what they need to do, run around in circles in some awful cases, take selfies, it just feels as though, and this is the obvious line, if the people scaling the walls of the Capitol had been black and brown political protesters, this would have gone really differently. And that's, that's a problem
1: it is a big problem and uh, i i thought the the president elect uh, put this put this well in the aftermath of this where he said something similar to what 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 you've just said Dahlia, which is the 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 way people looked shouldn't affect how law enforcement does its job and yet it clearly continues to in this country and it clearly would have played out differently on wednesday had uh, had people looked different and so that's um look that's one of these 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 big vital urgent challenges that sits uh, on the table, so to speak, at the exact same time as sorting out the disinformation problem that contributed, maybe even was was a, a prime mover of Wednesday. It, it, it sits on the table at the same time as a raging uh, pandemic. It sits at the same time as an economy that is letting many people down, in part because the pandemic has, 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 uh, has contributed to that. All of these are urgent. All of these are, in a sense, uh, existential because uh, whether people are, are, are treated differently, whether it's by law enforcement or, or by other aspects of the government based on the color of their skin or, or how they look, I mean, that's core to this democratic thing we're all trying to do here, in the same way that using violence to change an election result um, strikes at the core of this, of this democratic thing we're trying to do. So there, there is a lot that we need to keep on the table, and there's a lot that we need to not allow just, just to fade. Not to say, okay, you know, Capitol Police retook the building, the vote finished uh, a few hours later than it otherwise would have. That's not good enough, but also simply accepting that the policing would have played out differently if, if, if those um, trespassing and assaulting and using violence had looked different. That's not good enough.
2: Hi. Now let's return to our conversation with Joshua Geltzer. He serves as the founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy, as well as being a visiting law professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Let's talk briefly, if we can, about the Pentagon and about this question of who. If we can talk about this in terms of domestic terrorism, then who's in charge? And the headline from January 3rd, all 10 living former defense secretaries say involving the military and election disputes would cross into dangerous territory. And we all said, yay, that's the military saying they're not going to support Trump. But then we now know that the Pentagon stood down, right? The Pentagon put limits on the National Guard before the protests. There was... Real quandary, it seems to me, uh, after the D.C. mayor uh, wanted the National Guard to step in. This is two sides of the same coin, right? We're terrified of the military getting involved in domestic affairs, but it left us at the mercy of having the Capitol Police completely Outgunned the other day. Can can you help me think about this question of we need to make a decision about when the National Guard can step in, and and we blew it this week.
1: Yeah, this this week was not uh, clearly was not the way one would want to see any of that play out. Even if even if figuring out uh, what we want is 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 difficult, you know, I think a, a big thing that that that's different about this week was the the desire for help right i mean part of what has made the de- a few different types of domestic deployments uh, under under trump concerning is that they were done contrary to the wishes of those on the ground and local and i i'm thinking both of some of the activity over the summer in washington dc but i'm also thinking of dhs law enforcement although often dressed and and, and looking quite militaristic uh, out in the in the in the pacific northwest as well uh, the idea that 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 happens contrary to what a mayor or a governor uh, says will best uh, resolve a situation, I think rightly people thought that that those in in Washington and the Trump administration were in some ways making it worse rather than better. Here, things were already bad <laughs> things were, were were quite bad, and um, ultimately there is um, there is a need for for force to meet force. Uh, we had crossed into the point where uh, the Capitol had been had been breached, and people were being uh, assaulted within it. Guns were drawn. One person was even shot. So look, there is a role for um, for the National Guard in in our society. It, it's it, and and Wednesday showed us its urgent need. What, what I think stepping back from that, it it will help a future uh, Pentagon, future law enforcement, and, and a future White House. I think to to try to figure out what what was wrong about the thinking going into Wednesday. And I don't mean that just in in terms of what was obviously an underestimation by at least some as, as to as to the nature of the threat they faced, but also in terms of things that one thinks of the military generally being quite good at: lines of communication, channels of communication, how to approve things uh, that when when lives are on the line. All that did not play out uh, Wednesday, and, and I hope, and I hope that's, that's not the end of the conversation, but the beginning of a look back. But you know, th- there's also, I think, a, a broader sense that what happened on Wednesday reaffirmed that there will be people who try to challenge US government, state, local governments with violence. That, that's not going away. It's not going away on January 20. When you see, uh, at a much smaller scale than Wednesday, but also horrific, the plot against Governor Whitmer by those who, who, who also, uh, to my mind, clearly meet the statutory definition of domestic terrorists. There was a desire to change the course of politics and uh, take human lives there. And that that's not going to end um, on January 20. That is something that has, of course, been a you know problem for law enforcement uh, before. It's not brand new. But that has been uh, revived and, I would say, incited by Donald Trump from the bully pulpit he's had for four years, and we are both going to be stuck with the lingering effects and the trajectory that that pointed some people on, plus we will have whatever bully pulpit Donald Trump chooses to, to use and abuse, even when he's no longer the president.
2: I think that's so important because I think there is, just as we've described, you and I, this failure of imagination to see what's around the corner. I think there is a layer of magical thinking that says that what's around the corner is the status quo ex ante. We're just going to go back to the good old days and this is all going to go away. And I think it's really essential to understand what is going to go away and what's not going to go away on January 20th. I do want to ask one interregnum question. It's, part of why I desperately wanted to talk to you this week, I guess it was Mike Pence who called in the National Guard eventually, raising questions in my mind and a lot of people's minds about who's in charge. I think there was some scuttlebutt. Did they 25th Amendment the president in 14 seconds? I guess not. There's a real absence of, as I understand it, a commander-in-chief at this moment. As a formal matter, I guess Donald Trump is still in charge. We heard Friday morning Nancy Pelosi's talking to the Joint Chiefs about taking the nuclear codes away from Trump as though it's his, I don't know, Raggedy Andy doll. I'm very worried and stressed that in this larger conversation about, is it the 25th Amendment, is it impeachment, that we actually have either an unfit president for the next two weeks or a great sucking noise that might, when I think about geopolitical questions, be even scarier than an unfit president. So could you reassure me about the state of the whole entire world between now and January 20th, please? (laughs)
1: Let me start with the piece that that I always find um, truly reassuring, which is— Below the political level, there are extraordinary Americans in, in the military, in the intelligence services, in law enforcement who are doing what they do every day, which is they are trying to identify, detect threats. They are prepared to respond to those in ways that, that some uh, pre-existing authority allows them to do or to alert superiors where that's the, the protocol. There are people who, who are who just continue and, and under extraordinarily difficult um, circumstances, I think, with all the political noise of the past four years, they are continuing to do uh, what they signed up to do and what they um, uh, do as as uh, as patriots, which is try to protect and defend this country. That doesn't change uh, for all for all of uh, of the mayhem in Washington on Wednesday and all of the political and leadership level mayhem that, as you say, Dahlia, really persists af- after Wednesday and, and appears to continue. So. That doesn't stop. That doesn't go away. But where leadership decisions are needed or where affirmative leadership decisions might be made, in other words, not responding to outside threats but doing something that's escalatory or or, or a provocation by choice, uh, I think there's reason to worry. I I think there's there's good reason to to hope that January 20 comes um, without such an an incident because Mm -hmm. Um, much as I do trust in in those uh, uh, brave men and women who who are continuing to do at the non-political, apolitical level everything they can to protect the country, it is is hard to say one one trusts in in the leadership of of Donald Trump after seeing what he uh, exhorted, encouraged, and some would say incited uh, on Wednesday, as well as the revelations on that day and since as to, uh, how little interest he seems to have in governing and how much interest he seems to have in watching coverage of himself, tweeting and um, doing an- anything other than looking out for the for the interests of, of the country. So um, it, 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 one would be sugarcoating it to say that that's anything but a concerning state of affairs, but where do I take solace? I take some solace in those who are doing what they need to do, do the, uh, below the political level to um, to try to protect and defend us as they've sworn to do.
2: And it leads to this really complicated, what I've learned to call the exit voice and loyalty problem, the A.O. Hirschman problem of who sticks around and who goes. And I've been obsessing about this for a couple of years. I have to say Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chow. Um, But I wonder what it means when people are saying, okay, this is too much and I'm leaving. Now, that's a really tricky proposition, maybe not for the education secretary, but one would not want half the military to say, you've gone too far and I'm, I'm leaving before the next coup.
1: I think that's right. And, um, you know, the, the, the importance of resisting uh, that which one is asked to do, but what one believes is actually unlawful. Um, or short of that, and that's a pretty high bar, and and I think we generally want it to be a pretty high bar if we're going to have an executive branch that in better times, in normal times, is able to function, but short of that, saying, I don't know if this is lawful or unlawful, but I know it's awful, I know it's immoral, and I know that if you're going to want it done, you're going to want it done by somebody else because you'll have my resignation. There is a lot that people uh, can do, whether they are politicals who are still there, whether they are... Um, not politicals, but but folks who might be in acting roles because of the either the Trump firings, which used to happen at, a, at quite a rate, or the, the resignations, which, as you say, are now happening themselves at a, an unusual rate. Wh- whoever finds themselves in a position where they're being asked to do something like that, um, they are not powerless. They are actors uh, in, in the world, and I, I hope that they will... Um, Realize that they have the power to to both slow things down and to um, shine a light on it if they insist that it won't be them. And that's an easy thing to say when you're not the person um, threatening to to, to resign or, or or declaring you need to be fired if if, if something is going to happen. It's certainly easier for somebody from the outside to say it. But I also think it's fair to expect that uh, rather than to go along with what could be some truly awful things and what still feels like a long number of days left to the to the Trump administration potentially
2: we've talked about how this doesn't magically end on january 20th and yet we've had extraordinary news this week two georgia senate seats historically to a black man and a jewish man quite an amazing ground shift, uh, plaudits to Stacey Abrams for her organizing, and then the installation of extraordinary people at the helm of the DOJ, Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, Vanita, Gupta, uh, Kristen Clark. Uh, I wonder what all that signals to you about both the arc of the moral universe, if I can dare to use that phrase, but also the biden administration's vision for how to do both the repair of what's been broken but also what you're describing as you know years long work of repair in politics discourse truth communications what is what do these appointments signal to you about how biden is thinking about this
1: to, to me, these these wonderful folks who who are who are about to 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 lead the Justice Department, the National Security Council, the, the parts of our federal government, they indicate to me uh, a recognition by the incoming administration that there are fundamental, structural things that need work. In addition to the urgencies of now, and the urgencies of now are big. I don't want to uh, denigrate them. I know I keep uh, I keep emphasizing this, but when when Americans are are dying at the rate they are from a pandemic, and when uh, the suffering is so great across the country, you, you can't help but emphasize that there is a fierce urgency of now to deal with this this health crisis and the uh, racial in, in, in inequities, uh, education problems, so much associated with it. But when you see folks uh, like Jake Uh, uh, dealing with national security like Susan Rice uh, doing domestic policy, Um, like uh, Vanita and Kristen and their commitment to civil rights work, like Lisa, who's thought so hard about cyber-enabled challenges and other technological national security and law enforcement challenges, you're seeing people who who recognize that there's some fundamental structural work we have to do in addition to those fierce urgency of now problems. And if we're going to point this country in in a pathway in which truth rather than disinformation dominates, in which uh, the question becomes whom to vote for rather than whom to allow to vote. The, these are the right sort of people to tackle those challenges, and those are the challenges that underpin so much else. So that's what it signals to me. It signals to me people who thought hard and who recognize those, those underpinnings of our democracy need some real attention, even as people in those sorts of, positions often deal with, with, with the issues that sit on top of that, the, 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 the urgent ones of the moment. Um, and I think that's a good thing because I think we, th- those things need attention fast.
2: Joshua Geltzer serves as founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy, teaches law at Georgetown University Law Center, and served from 2015 to 2017 as senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council staff. He also serves as uh, often my sanity check and often (laughs) as my Jiminy Cricket to Aspire for more and to push harder. Josh, I cannot thank you enough for your work in the past years, but also the work you're going to do going forward. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Dahlia. Always fun to get to talk with you. Thank you for all the work you do as well.
2: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening to this extra off week episode. Thank you also so much for your letters and questions. We're doing our best to answer them and to stay one beat ahead of whatever it is (laughs) that you're about to ask. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And we always appreciate your feedback. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week.